This Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, is supported by Salesforce. Constitutional recognition of our First Nations people is key to reconciliation in Australia, and achieving it depends on the efforts of activists, advocates, legal professionals, and policy influencers. And somehow, my next guest manages to do all four. I'm Kate Mills, the host of Women's Agenda's new podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, supported by Salesforce. In this episode, I'm joined by proud Wiradjuri and Walwen woman, Teela Reid. She's a defence lawyer, former teacher and vocal activist for Indigenous rights. She wants all Australians to embrace inclusive change and understand the value and significance of doing so. Teela, it's great to have you on the show. Yama, hello. Thanks for having me. You're really privileged to be on here. I should say that I am recording this podcast from Gadigal Country. I live and I work both on Gadigal and Bedigal Country, and I acknowledge that this land and its waters have never been ceded by the First Nations. And I feel really blessed by the ancestors on this country. I myself am a Wiradjuri and Wailwan woman, so I'm a Western Plains girl from Western New South Wales, a freshwater girl, and to live by the salt water has been an incredible privilege, and I thank the ancestors for welcoming me to this country. That's a beautiful start to the conversation. I like that, a freshwater girl living next to the salt waters. So you are currently a defence lawyer. Did you always want to be a lawyer? Was that the dream? No, absolutely not. Uh, I grew up in a little town of about two and a half thousand people in central western New South Wales and I didn't know any lawyers at the time. I left high school and went on to study teaching. Oh, that's right. So you actually started off as a PE teacher. Did you enjoy being a teacher? Look, I was a health and physical education teacher and I think my natural transition into that career was from a love of sport myself. In central western New South Wales, I played every single sport that was on offer. Sport taught me so much, like on reflection, it taught me so much about discipline and training and a commitment to a team and a focus and a goal. And I think that those fundamental principles I translated into, you know, an undergraduate career in teaching, which I guess just kind of naturally blossomed into this career of law. And I I know it sounds a little bit cliche, but I honestly do think the law chose me. I didn't really choose this path. What, What do you mean when you say the law chose me? I feel as though it was a sense of obligation to my people. And I thought then if this is the system that has this impact on stolen generations and stolen wages on oppressing my people, then I have an obligation to to learn this system in order to empower my people and use it as a tool to fight back. So, you know, I was a teacher and then I was chosen to go to the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues and I was part of a World Indigenous Youth Caucus. And on that caucus, the um, Indigenous delegates of the world elected me as their secretariat and I thought, what what an honour. And that was a turning point in terms of coming back to Australia and learning more about the legal system. And I thought, okay, well, I'd just better go and be a lawyer. So at that point, I'm, I'm imagining, but tell me, 
you step into a room potentially for the first time with lots of other Indigenous people from around the world. What was that experience like? For me, it was life-changing but also affirming of our people's struggle here that when you step into a room of First Nations peoples from around the globe on different continents, you start to understand how invasion and colonisation has impacted um, so many different First Nations. And the way in which I can describe it is, you know, it's like a spectrum. At one end of the spectrum, the First Nations peoples have been colonised for many more years than what we have in Australia. So invasion has gone a lot deeper. And some countries, for example, already have treaties. Whereas what really shook me to my core was that I got a sense of understanding of how big our struggle as First Nations peoples was here because we are a continent colonised without treaty, without a voice and without truth. And so I came back with a big fire in my belly to better understand our struggle and how to empower my people through that. We're going to come back to both of those concepts, Tila, but what do you think, um, having both those perspectives, you know, both being a student and then being a teacher, what do you think about how we educate people and what do you think about sort of education in, um, in this country? That's a great question. I recall when I was a teacher and it was difficult because it was this tick the box exercise on what students ought to learn and ought to understand. And for me, that was very different to the kind of education I got at home from my grandfather around the campfire about the power of storytelling and healing and the importance of listening to my elders and our ancestors. And Teaching, I recall writing a paper in my undergraduate degree and my final point to be made was that teaching was a tool used by the coloniser as a form of modern-day genocide. And I I got a horrible mark for it because obviously the lecturer didn't take that very well. But this is the reality of Western education systems is they whitewash history And they impose a worldview on students and our next generations on what they ought to learn about the Western system. And growing up, you know, walking through the school gates in my little hometown, it certainly felt like a foreign world for me to walk into. One of the other things that I learned as well, that if I was going to speak my truth, and speak my truth as a Wiradjuri Wailwan girl, Kuri girl, and at the time, that it wasn't going to be received well. And I remember I would walk out of the school gates in my clean clad uniform and piggy tails and walk back down my street and my grandfather's fire would be burning bright. I didn't really understand the privilege of that at the time to be able to go home and sit around the campfire, you know, and learning all of these stories about my people. But now on reflection as an adult, as I wrote in that essay, you know, I learned so many more lessons around that fire than I did in the classroom. And I think Western education has not always been ready for black women to speak their truth. Can I ask you about just about that phrase that you said there? Um, you realised that if you spoke your truth, it wasn't going to be received well. And that was then, you know, when you were um, a student at school. Do you think that's changed? Is, is your truth better received now? 
It's something that's probably a question better asked of non-Indigenous peoples when they hear Black women speak. But I guess the thing is, when I do speak my truth now, I probably have a thicker skin for the backlash. So, Tila, you really stand out as one of our sort of young leaders in our, in our current society. You were the first Indigenous youth delegate to the UN Permanent Forum in New York, which you mentioned earlier. And there's been a lot of other firsts. You know, you were the first Aboriginal person to be elected to UNSW Law Society as Vice President and the inaugural recipient of the New South Wales Indigenous Barristers Trust Award. What do you think about leadership and, and yourself being viewed as a leadership? And what do you want other people to take from that? So I don't think I was the first delegate to the UN. However, I was in the other facets, the first, I think, Aboriginal Vice President of the UNSW Law Society and the inaugural recipient of the New South Wales Barristers Trust Award. I think, look, at the end of the day, the word leadership can mean different things in the Aboriginal community. Often our leaders are our elders. So it sits a little bit uncomfortable within me to be to be identified kind of as a leader. But back to your question, you know, what does it take or what, I guess, sets the kind of advocacy apart? Often a lot of younger lawyers ask me this question as well. And I think one of the things that I have never been afraid to do is to think creatively. If things don't exist that I creatively want then create them and I think that comes partly into kind of you know the advocacy around I'm doing now is fighting for a better nation fighting for the voices of First Nations peoples to not be a side note in our history but to be the common thread that binds us If we just maintain the status quo in our profession, we are simply upholding institutions of oppression against First Nations peoples. And we have an obligation to use our legal skill set to dismantle a system that has consistently oppressed First Nations peoples in this country. I want to reflect back on that experience you had when you were in the UN um, and you walk into that room and there's people from around the world who are all First Nations people, but you made that observation that this you are a First Nations people without treaty. And so if you compare that to Canada, if you compare that to New Zealand, what's your observation on that? Why is the Australian experience so different? Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting question. Look, I actually lived on Turtle Island for a year. So I did get that on the ground feeling and experience. And of course, I've been to Arotorua several times. And these are nations with treaties. And I think, you know, when you look back at the points of first contact or the points of invasion on these particular continents, you know that when colonizers came to Australia, they did not morally recognize the many First Nations that were preoccupied preoccupying and the land and I think you can fall into a dangerous trap in terms of comparison but take for example New Zealand has the Treaty of Waitangi that is one of the foundational documents of that colony however New Zealand does not have a written constitution like Australia so when you think about where we are now in terms of the First Nations struggle here on this continent, we are effectively 250 years into colonisation and invasion without a treaty, without any moral recognition 
of the First Nations that lived here without any legal reform to empower that. And we have a complex task ahead of us, I think. And in terms of treaties, or treaties, because it will be tre- many treaties, not just one treaty, it raises many questions for the many First Nations across this continent because you have to figure out who is able to negotiate that treaty, who negotiates the terms and the rights within those treaties. So they're going to be an ongoing obligation between both parties. However, I guess I'll make this point. Here in Australia, where we it became a federation in 1901, unlike other jurisdictions, the federal parliament retained a lot of power, which means federal laws can always override state and territory laws. So we have an issue or a hurdle or a speed bump in terms of, well, in, when it comes to the recognition of First Nations peoples, that it must happen at the federal level in order to create a power shift within First Nations communities. And so that's why I advocate for, you know, the the voice treaty truth within the Uluru Statement because not only do First Nations peoples demand treaty, which is their right, the question becomes how. How do you get there? How do you develop this? How do you have these ongoing conversations? And what we know here in Australia is that Australia does not recognise within its foundational document, like the Constitution, First Nations peoples at all. So we're still at a frustratingly early point of the conversation of even recognising that there were First Nations here before colonisation. I want to talk now about something which I I think is is pretty dear to you, which is around the Uluru Statement and, and the future for uh, the, you know how uh, Indigenous people are going to work and what kind of platform there is going to be going forward. So, so you were involved in some ways in the constitutional dialogue process that culminated in the Uluru Statement from the heart. So can you tell me about your involvement, how it came about and what it meant to you? We should, when we kind of talk about the Uluru Statement, there are many other petitions in the past that have called for the same things. Okay, like the Barunga Statement called for treaty, the Yakala petitions, the um, Larrakia petitions. First Nations peoples have always been demanding more power and greater say in the democratic process. When I was invited to the conversations around the Uluru Statement from the heart, it was kind of during a period where many people would know the Recognise campaign, which was a government entity, had been kind of dismantled because First Nations peoples within the community really resisted the fact that there was a government-driven agenda. But also there was lack of clarity within that Recognise entity about what model and how Australia ought to recognise First Nations peoples. So on the at the grassroots um, in black communities, people were going, no, we're not standing for this government-driven um, campaign, which was many would recall as the big R. And so that eventually got dismantled and then conversations around leading up to the constitutional dialogues had taken place because many First Nations leaders had met in 2015 at Kirribilli, and that's a quite a significant statement. There was a, there was a uh, statement issued in 2015 
by First Nations leaders that said there is no point, absolutely no point in recognising First Nations peoples unless you ask First Nations peoples how they ought to be recognised, which is how the constitutional dialogue process came into play. It meant that these dialogues went out into the community and asked First Nations, what model of recognition ought you be recognised? And the Uluru Statement from the Heart issued to the Australian people, not politicians, had called for firstly a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution and then a Makarata Commission to enable treaty and truth-telling. My role initially was very minor. You know, I was probably one of the youngest or younger participants in a room full of elders and activists, and I didn't really say much. It was my role to sit and listen, just like I did around the campfire. But then the constitutional dialogues went out to 13 different sites around Australia and its islands, adjacent islands, and I was a working group leader on Section 5126, the race power of the Constitution. So for those who don't know, Australian Parliament is empowered to make laws not only to the advantage of First Nations peoples, but the High Court has said that it can make laws to the detriment of First Nations peoples. And my role was to be a working group leader around sharing information and using my legal knowledge and community knowledge about that power. But of course, we know that uh, the, the only cause within the Uluru Statement is voice, treaty truth. And so I've just advocated for that ever since because that's the mandate. Those, that is how First Nations peoples after, within the dialogues had said they will not accept symbolism, they will not accept anything like a preamble. First Nations peoples want real power on the ground and it's absolutely time. And I think since I have travelled the continent, you know, discussing the Uluru Statement, it has been the Australian people who have accepted the invitation at the heart and continue to hold space for the conversation because we know politicians had dismissed it for the last three years. What does the statement mean to you and how did you feel when it, when it was issued? Did, did you feel like it, it changed things? Absolutely. I think that the Uluru statement from the heart really changed the game significantly. For example, this for so, so long, even throughout my Western education, and even, you know, throughout law school, there was an assumption in the Western, you know, mindset that there was no such thing as First Nations sovereignty, that it is only the Crown sovereignty, it is only white sovereignty. And I think the Uluru Statement absolutely changed the game in terms of uh, the discussion at the community level with respect to the unceded sovereignty of First Nations, that our sovereignty is a spiritual notion. And it changed the game in the sense that it, uh, it drew a line in the sand. It drew a line in the sand and said, look, if we're going to go down this path of addressing the unfinished business of recognising First Nations peoples, then we as First Nations are not accepting breadcrumbs anymore. Our people are dying at the hands of this state. We are incarcerated at record rates across the planet. We don't have the luxury of accepting breadcrumbs and symbolism. The fight 
is going to be for a First Nations voice and it's about time that we also start to have conversations about treaties and truth-telling. So I certainly think in the last three years, as I have voluntarily gone around the country, that those conversations continue to be seeded and, you know, as in growing, they continue to be growing within the community. And it is the Australian people who continue to engage in that conversation. So it absolutely did change the game. So you wrote in an essay this year, but a legacy of sorry speeches, taxpayer reports, interventions, inquiries and commissions producing endless recommendations that are really implemented and ceremonious acknowledgements of, of country have become empty platitudes, an excuse to virtue signal without making structural change. Um, and, and you go on to make the point that, you know, in order to make the change, you need to recognise that land was taken without consent, without treaty or without compensation. There, there is a lot of symbolism around this. And it's interesting, like I said, your point about breadcrumbs. To our audience, how do you make the distinction between what has gone before, the legacy of sorry speeches, taxpayer reports, ceremonious acknowledgements of country, and what you want to see come going forward? I think a really good way to distinguish those points is to look at this. Let's all look at the close the gap policy. It's a policy that has promised significant changes in terms of reducing of of achieving parity between First Nations and non-First Nations life expectancy and things like that. In 2008, it promised there would be parity between all Australians in a decade, 2018. What we witnessed in that decade was Australia doing really fantastic symbolic rituals well. We witnessed sorry speeches. We witnessed more reports. We witnessed Dondale as a royal commission. And we then witness at the other end the dismissal of the Uluru Statement. I think Australians are absolutely smart enough to understand that politicians are playing on symbolism to create an illusion that they're doing things for First Nations when in fact they're not. And so I think where we are at now is there is a real sense of urgency So I think where we're at now, particularly this year when many people have had conversations about Black Lives Matter, we've witnessed black deaths in custody, we all know or have some sense of understanding about the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody and now we're over 30 years since those recommendations were made. We know as First Nations, politicians will not change the system for us. They will not. They have proven again and again they won't. And so I think the real sense of urgency for um, our Australian you know, comrades and brothers and sisters is to really stand up and rise up and go, things must fundamentally and structurally change in our democracy to ensure that First Nations peoples take their rightful place in this country. Are you hopeful? Absolutely. You've got to be a little bit hopeful, but I think more than hopeful, I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm frustrated, and I think that all of those emotions in one are about harnessing the energy that I have with inside of me to, you know, engage in these conversations, to go out and advocate for for changes. Um, As you mentioned in the very beginning, I am a defence lawyer, that's my practice. 
And even with respect to that, you know, I refuse to accept that system the way it is, the criminal legal system the way it is. So I've advocated for, I've designed a Wallama court along with judges and barristers and defence lawyers. And we are advocating for, you know, a new court system to hear the stories in a culturally safe way of First Nations peoples when they come before a court that their stories and their lives are treated with respect and they're heard. And so the Wallama Court is about designing a court model where next to judicial officers are elders and respected persons uh, hearing the stories of Aboriginal defendants that come before the court because there is intergenerational trauma that First Nations experience. And in the current kind of status quo, we're not capturing the full gravity and the full weight of the this intergenerational trauma and the impact of these systems on our people. So I think, again, I'm not settling for the status quo. I'm trying to create a world that is fairer and a world that is prepared to dismantle racism within its institutions. So, you know, when I thought about this interview, I thought about uh, truth and treaty, you know, because those are the two things that really came through when I was doing my research on you. So we've talked a lot about, you know, treaty and the Uluru Statement. I wanted just to ask you one thing about truth. Such an important thing in the conversation about Indigenous peoples, um, First Nations peoples here in Australia. But truth lately has become this very different concept to what it was. And I think back to Mandela and his um, reconciliation and truth approach towards bringing South Africa back together. Is truth still what it was? Look, I think Australians know the truth. They know that this land was colonised without treaty. That's, that's a fact of our society. What I think is the more difficult question is how we grapple with that truth. And so that is why grappling with the question of how we recognise First Nations peoples and we enshrine a First Nations voice in the Constitution as a sovereign First Nations voice, and I must make that clear, my support for a First Nations voice is about recognising this ancient sovereignty. So firstly, the first part is this. I, I think Australians know the truth. We just have to deal with it. And that means structural change. And then on the other hand, I think that truth-telling, the way in which it was conceived within the Uluru Statement from the Heart was to call for a Makarata Commission to enable a process of treaty and truth-telling. And this is because when First Nations elders and old people spoke about truth-telling in this country, it wasn't some big concept of Royal Commission kind of process. It was about you know, and if you know black communities, they work on their own time. Our time is circular. It's not linear in our community, in our thinking. And so this concept of truth-telling was about how mob can tap in and tap out of a truth-telling process. But also the truth-telling was about First Nations peoples going, you mob know the truth. You white fellas know the truth. It's time you speak your truth. And, and own up to what your ancestors did to our people. And so it was about continuing a dialogue of truth-telling. So I think perhaps, it, you know, the way in which First Nations elders spoke about it is probably some of the most sophisticated kinds of truth-telling that we've witnessed on the planet. And we're yet to kind of get there. But I, I think at the end of the day, many people are going on their own journey as well. That was a great conversation with Paula, and I really hope that you enjoyed it. 
The episode was produced by Lisa Gebelagin. And if you've enjoyed it, then don't forget to subscribe and also leave us a rating. And if you want more from Women's Agenda, and I hope you do, then visit womensagenda.com.au. Look forward to seeing you next week. Women's Agenda is proud to partner with Salesforce on this podcast series. As the world's leading CRM, Salesforce continues to be a different kind of Fortune 500 company, one that cares and gives back to the community, yet innovates like a startup. Equality is a core value at Salesforce and as a business, believes that its higher purpose is to drive equality for all. For more, visit salesforce.com.